This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. We are officially over 250 episodes. Um, pretty wild. And uh, tonight, I have a brand new author that we have never read on the show before. It's a great story. But before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to thank all of our brand new sponsors on Patreon.com, which is a website you can uh, go and pledge a couple bucks to hear an ad-free version of the show and be a part of making it. So, this week's wonderful new patrons... Christina Manuj, Julie Goodman, Michelle McAway, Skylar Lindbergh, and Matt Dawson. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. And I've said this before, but if I ever do mispronounce your name, I'm sorry. I, I try. And uh, to anyone who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new supporters on Patreon where you can uh, support the show directly. So if you wanted to 
be a part of making this show and listen to an ad-free version, uh, you can just go on and pledge a couple bucks and it's yours. Um, at $5, you get access to our exclusive poetry feed, which is over 50 episodes of um, poetry readings that you haven't heard on the regular show. But even if you donate a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you want to be a part of making this show, just go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, uh, as I said in the beginning, uh, a brand new author we're reading on the show. I'll admit I was, uh, I was very much drawn to the title on the, uh, you know, the neck of the book. Uh, it's O Pioneers by Willa Cather. This was uh, originally published in 1913, and it's about some Swedish immigrants farming the prairie of Nebraska at the turn of the 20th century. And, um, yeah, just... Um, Felt like an appropriate reading for this time of year. Spring, new beginnings. Kind of got me excited to be productive, venture out of my comfort zone a little bit. Anyways, um, the writing is really beautiful. Very old-timey American, and I think you're going to like falling asleep to it. So, without further ado... O Pioneers by Willa Cather And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter 1 One January day, thirty years ago, the little town of Hanover, anchored on a windy Nebraska tableland, was trying not to be blown away. A mist of fine snowflakes was curling and eddying about the cluster of low, drab buildings huddled on the gray prairie under a gray sky. The dwelling houses were set about haphazard on the tough prairie sod. Some of them looked as if they had been moved in overnight, and others as if they were straying off by themselves, headed straight for the open plain. None of them had any appearance of permanence, and the howling wind blew under them as well as over them. The main street was a deeply rutted road, now frozen hard, which ran from the squat red railway station to the grain elevator at the north end of the town, to the lumber yard and the horse pond at the south end. 
On either side of this road straggled two uneven rows of wooden buildings. The general merchandise stores, the two banks, the drug store, the feed store, the saloon, the post office. The board sidewalks were gray with trampled snow. But at two o'clock in the afternoon, the shopkeepers, having come back from dinner, were keeping well behind their frosty windows. The children were all in school, and there was nobody abroad in the streets but a few rough-looking countrymen in coarse overcoats with their long caps pulled down to their noses. Some of them had brought their wives to town, and now and then a red or a plaid shawl flashed out of one store into the shelter of another. At the hitch bars along the street, a few heavy workhorses harnessed to farm wagons shivered under their blankets. About the station was quiet, for there would not be another train in until night. On the sidewalk in front of the store sat a little Swede boy, crying bitterly. He was about five years old. His black cloth coat was much too big for him and made him look like a little old man. His shrunken brown flannel dress had been washed many times and left a long stretch of stocking between the hem of his skirt and the tops of his clumsy copper-toed shoes. His cap was pulled down over his ears. His nose and his chubby cheeks were chapped and red with cold. He cried quietly, and the few people who hurried by did not notice him. He was afraid to stop anyone, afraid to go into the store and ask for help. So he sat wringing his long sleeves and looking up a telegraph pole beside him, whimpering, My kitten, my kitten, her will freeze. At the top of the pole crouched a shivering gray kitten, mewing faintly and clinging desperately to the wood with her claws. The boy had been left at the store while his sister went to the doctor's office, and in her absence a dog had chased his kitten up the pole. The little creature had never been so high before, and she was too frightened to move. Her master was sunk in despair. He was a little country boy, and this village to him was a very strange and perplexing place where people wore fine clothes and had hard hearts. He always felt shy and awkward here and wanted to hide behind things for fear that some might laugh at him. Just now, he was too unhappy to care who laughed. At last he seemed a ray of hope. His sister was coming, and he got up and ran toward her in his heavy shoes. His sister was a tall, strong girl, and she walked rapidly and resolutely as if she knew exactly where she was going and what she was going to do next. She wore a man's long ulster, not as if it were an affliction, but as if it were very comfortable and belonged to her, carried it like a young soldier, and a round plush cap tied down with a thick veil. 
She had a serious, thoughtful face, and her clear, deep blue eyes were fixed intently on the distance, without seeming to see anything, as if she were in trouble. She did not notice the little boy until he pulled her by the coat. Then she stopped short and stooped down to wipe his wet face. Why, Emile, I told you to stay in the store and not come out. What is the matter with you? My kitten, sister, my kitten. A man put her out, and a dog chased her up there. His forefinger, projecting from the sleeve of his coat, pointed up to the wretched little creature on the pole. Oh, Emile, didn't I tell you she'd get us in trouble of some kind? If you brought her, what made you tease me so? But there, I ought to have known better myself. She went to the foot of the pole and held out her arms, crying, Kitty, kitty, kitty. But the kitten only mewed and faintly waved its tail. Alexandra turned away decidedly. No, she won't come down. Somebody will have to go up after her. I saw the Lindstrom's wagon in town. I'll go and see if I can find Carl. Maybe he can do something. Only you must stop crying, or I won't go a step. Where's your comforter? Did he leave it in the store? Never mind. Hold still till I put this on you. She unwound the brown veil from her head and tied it about his throat. A shabby little traveling man, who was just then coming out of the store on his way to the saloon, stopped and gazed stupidly at the shining mass of hair she bare when she took off her veil. Two thick braids, pinned about her head in a German way, with a fringe of reddish-yellow curls blowing out from under her cap. He took his cigar out of his mouth and held the wet end between his fingers of his wooden glove. My God, girl, what a head of hair, he exclaimed, quite innocently and foolishly. She stabbed him with a glance of Amazonian fierceness and drew in her lower lip, most unnecessary severity. It gave the little clothing drummer such a start that he actually let his cigar fall to the sidewalk and went off weakly in the teeth of the wind to the saloon. His hand was still unsteady when he took his glass from the bartender. His feeble, flirtatious instincts had been crushed before, but never so mercilessly. He felt cheap and ill-used, as if someone had taken advantage of him. When a drummer had been knocking about in the little drab towns and crawling across the wintry country in dirty smoking cars, was he to be blamed if, when he chanced upon a fine human creature, he suddenly wished himself more of a man? While the little drummer was drinking to recover his nerve, Alexandra hurried to the drugstore as the most likely place to find Carl Lindstrom. 
There he was, turning over a portfolio of chromo studies, which the druggist sold to the Hanover women who did china painting. Alexandra explained her predicament, and the boy followed her to the corner, where Emile still sat by the pole. I'll have to go up after her, Alexandra. I think at the depot they have some spikes I can strap on my feet. Wait a minute. Carl thrust his hands into his pockets, lowered his head, and darted up the street against the north wind. He was a tall boy of 15, slight and narrow-chested. When he came back with the spikes... Alexandra asked him what he had done with his overcoat. I left it in the drugstore. I couldn't climb in it, anyhow. Catch me if I fall, Emil, he called back as he began his ascent. Alexandra watched him anxiously. The cold was bitter enough on the ground. The kitten would not budge an inch. Carl had to go to the very top of the pole and then had some difficulty in tearing her from her hold. When he reached the ground, he handed the cat to her tearful little master. Now go into the store with her, Emil, and get warm. He opened the door for the child. Wait a minute, Alexandra. Why can't I drive for you as far as our place? It's getting colder every minute. Have you seen the doctor? Yes. He's coming over tomorrow. But he says father can't get better. Can't get well. The girl's lip trembled. She looked fixedly up the bleak street as if she were gathering her strength to face something. As if she were trying with all her might to grasp a situation which no matter how painful, must be met and dealt with somehow. The wind flapped the skirts of her heavy coat about her. Carl did not say anything, but she felt his sympathy. He too was lonely. He was a thin, frail boy, with brooding dark eyes, very quiet in all his movements. There was a delicate pallor in his thin face, and his mouth was too sensitive for a boy's. The lips had already a little curl of bitterness and skepticism. The two friends stood for a few moments on the windy street corner, not speaking a word, as two travelers who have lost their way sometimes stand and admit their perplexity in silence. When Carl turned away, he said, I'll see to your team. Alexandra went to the store to have her purchases packed in the egg boxes and to get warm before she set out on her long, cold drive. When she looked for a meal, she found him sitting on a step of the staircase that led up to the clothing and carpet department. He was playing with a little bohemian girl, Marie Tavesky, who was tying her handkerchief over the kitten's head for a bonnet. Marie was a stranger in the country, 
having come from Omaha with her mother to visit her uncle, Joe Tobeski. She was a dark child with brown curly hair, like a brunette doll's, a coaxing little red mouth, and round yellow-brown eyes. Everyone noticed her eyes. The brown iris had golden glints that made them look like goldstone, or in softer lights, like that Colorado mineral called tiger eye. The country children thereabouts wore their dresses to their shoe tops, but this city child was dressed in what was then called the Kate Greenway Manor, and a red cashmere frock, gathered full from the yoke, came almost to the floor. This, with her poke bonnet, gave her the look of a quaint little woman. She had a white fur tippet about her neck and made no fussy objections when Emil fingered it admiringly. Alexandra had not the heart to take him away from so pretty a playfellow, and she let them tease the kitten together until Joe Tavesky came in noisily and picked up his little niece, setting her on his shoulder for everyone to see. His children were all boys, and he adored this little creature. His cronies formed a circle about him, admiring and teasing the little girl, who took their jokes with great good nature. They were all delighted with her, for they seldom saw so pretty and carefully nurtured a child. She walked graciously over to Emil, followed by her admirers who formed a new circle and teased the little boy until he hid his face in his sister's skirts and she had to scold him for being such a baby. The farm people were making preparations to start for home. The women were checking over their groceries and pinning their big red shawls about their heads. The men were buying tobacco and candy with what money they had left were showing each other new boots and gloves and blue flannel shirts. Three big bohemians were drinking raw alcohol, tinctured with oil of cinnamon. This was said to fortify one effectually against the cold, and they smacked their lips after each pull at the flask. Their volubility drowned every other noise in the place and the overheated store sounded of their spirited language as it reeked of pipe smoke, damp woolens, and kerosene. Carl came in, wearing his overcoat and carrying a wooden box with a brass handle. Come, he said. I've fed and watered your team, and the wagon is ready. He carried a meal out, and tucked him down in the straw in the wagon box. The heat had made the little boy sleepy, but he still clung to his kin. You were awful good to climb so high and get my kitten, Carl. When I get big, I'll climb and get little boy's kittens for them, he murmured drowsily. Before the horses were over the first hill, Emil and his cat were both fast asleep. Although it was only four o'clock, the winter day was fading. 
The road led southwest toward the streak of pale, watery light that glimmered in the leaden sky. The light fell upon the two sad young faces that were turned mutely toward it. Upon the eyes of the girl, who seemed to be looking with such anguished perplexity into the future, upon the somber eyes of the boy, who seemed already to be looking into the past. The little town behind them had vanished as if it had never been, had fallen behind the swell of the prairie, and the stern, frozen country received them into its bosom. The homesteads were few and far apart, here and there a windmill gaunt against the sky, a sod house crouching in a hollow. But the great fact was the land itself, which seemed to overwhelm the little beginnings of human society that struggled in its somber wastes. It was from facing this vast hardness that the boy's mouth had become so bitter, because he felt that the men were too weak to make any mark here, that the land wanted to be let alone, to preserve its own fierce strength, its peculiar kind of beauty, its uninterrupted mournfulness. The wagon jolted along over the frozen road. The two friends had less to say to each other than usual, as if the cold had somehow penetrated to their hearts. Did Lou and Oscar go to the blue to cut wood today? Yes. I'm almost sorry I let them go. It's turned so cold. But Mother frets if the wood gets low. She stopped and put her hand to her forehead, brushing back her hair. I don't know what is to become of us, Carl, if father has to die. I don't dare to think about it. I wish we could all go with him and let the grass grow back over everything. Carl made no reply. Just ahead of them was the Norwegian graveyard where the grass had indeed grown back over everything, shaggy and red, hiding even the wire fence. Carl realized that he was not a very helpful companion, but there was nothing he could say. Of course, Alexandra went on, steadying her voice a little. The boys are strong and work hard, but we've always depended so on father that I don't see how we can go ahead. I almost feel as if there were nothing to go ahead for. Does your father know? Yes, I think he does. He lies and counts on his fingers all day. I think he is trying to count up what he is leaving for us. It is a comfort to him that my chickens are laying right on through the cold weather and bringing a little money. I wish we could keep his mind off such things, but I don't have much time to be with him now. I wonder if he'd like to have me bring my magic lantern over some evening. Alexandra turned her face toward him. Oh, Carl, have you got it? Yes, it's back there in the straw. Didn't you notice the box I was carrying? I tried it all morning in the drugstore cellar, 
and it worked ever so well. Makes fine big pictures. What are they about? Oh, hunting pictures in Germany, and Robinson Crusoe, and funny pictures about cannibals. I'm going to paint some other slides for it on glass, out of this Hans Anderson book. Alexandra seemed actually cheered. There is often a good deal of the child left in people who have had to grow up too soon. Do bring it over, Carl. I can hardly wait to see it, and I'm sure it will please Father. Are the pictures colored? I know he'll like them. He likes the calendars I get him in town. I wish I could get more. You must leave me here, mustn't you? It's been nice to have company. Carl stopped the horses and looked dubiously up at the black sky. It's pretty dark. Of course the horses will take you home, but I think I'd better light your lantern in case you should need it. He gave her the reins and climbed back into the wagon box where he crouched down and made a tent of his overcoat. After a dozen trials, he succeeded in lighting the lantern, which he placed in front of Alexandra, half covering it with a blanket so that the light would not shine in her eyes. Now, wait until I find my box. Yes, here it is. Good night, Alexandra. Try not to worry. Carl sprang to the ground and ran off across the fields towards the Lindstrom homestead. Who, who, he called back as he disappeared over a ridge and dropped into a sand gully. The wind answered him like an echo. Who, who. Alexandra drove off alone. The rattle of her wagon was lost in the howling of the wind, but her lantern, held firmly between her feet, made a moving point of light along the highway going deeper and deeper into the dark country. Chapter 2 On one of the ridges of that wintry waste stood the low log house in which John Bergson was dying. The Bergson homestead was easier to find than many other because it overlooked Norway Creek a shallow, muddy stream that sometimes flowed and sometimes stood still at the bottom of a winding ravine with steep, shelving sides overgrown with brush and cottonwoods and dwarf ash. This creek gave a sort of identity to the farms that bordered upon it. Of all the bewildering things about a new country, the absence of human landmarks is one of the most depressing and disheartening. The houses on the divide were small and were usually tucked away in low places. You did not see them until you came directly upon them. Most of them were built out of the sod itself and were only the unescapable ground in another form. The roads were but faint tracks in the grass and the fields were scarcely noticeable. 
the record of the plow was insignificant, like the feeble scratches on stone left by prehistoric races, so indeterminate that they may, after all, be the only markings of glaciers and not a record of human strivings. In eleven long years, John Bergson had made but little impression upon the wild land he had come to tame. It was still a wild thing that had its ugly moods, and no one knew where they were likely to come, or why. Mischance hung over it. Its genius was unfriendly to man. The sick man was feeling this as he lay looking out of the window after the doctor had left him on the day following Alexandra's trip to town. There it lay outside his door, the same land, the same lead-colored miles. He knew every ridge and draw and gully between him and the horizon. To the south, his plowed fields, to the east, the sod stables, the cattle corral, the pond, and then the grass. Bergson went over in his mind the things that held him back. One winter his cattle had perished in a blizzard. The next summer one of his plow horses broke its leg in a prairie dog hole and had to be shot. Another summer he lost his hogs from cholera and a valuable stallion died from a rattlesnake bite. Time and again his crops had failed. He had lost two children, boys, that came between Lou and Emil, and there had been the cost of sickness and death. Now, when he had at least struggled out of death, he was going to die himself. He was only 46, and had, of course, counted upon more time. Bergson had spent his five years on the divide getting into death and the last six getting out. He had paid off his mortgages and it ended up pretty much where he began, with the land. He owned exactly 640 acres of what stretched outside his door, his own original homestead and timber claim, making 320 acres and the half section adjoining the homestead of a younger brother who had given up the fight, gone back to Chicago to work in a fancy bakery and distinguish himself in a Swedish athletic club. So far, John had not attempted to cultivate the second half section, but used it for pasture land, and one of his sons rode her there in the open weather. John Bergson had the old world belief that land in itself is desirable. But this land was an enigma. It was like a horse that no one knows how to break to harness. That runs wild and kicks things to pieces. He had an idea that no one understood how to farm it properly. And this he often discussed with Alexandra. Their neighbors certainly knew even less about farming than he did. Many of them had never worked on a farm until they took up their homesteads. They had been hand workers at home, tailors, locksmiths, joiners, cigar makers, etc. 
Bergson himself had worked in a shipyard. For weeks, John Bergson had been thinking about these things. His bed stood in the sitting room next to the kitchen. Through the day, while the baking and washing and ironing were going on, the father lay and looked up at the roof beams that he himself had hewn, or out of the cattle in the corral. He counted the cattle over and over. It diverted him to speculate as to how much weight each of the steers would probably put on by spring. He often called his daughter in to talk to her about this. Before Alexander was 12 years old, she had begun to be a help to him, and as she grew older, he had come to depend more and more upon her resourcefulness and good judgment. His boys were willing enough to work, but when he talked to them, they usually irritated him. It was Alexandra who read the papers and followed the markets and who learned by the mistakes of their neighbors. It was Alexandra who could always tell about what it had cost to fatten each steer and who could guess the weight of a hog before it went on the scales closer than John Burks and himself. Lou and Oscar were industrious, but he could never teach them to use their heads about their work. Alexandra, her father often said to himself, was like her grandfather, which was his way of saying that she was intelligent. John Bergson's father had been a shipbuilder, a man of considerable force and of some fortune. Late in life, he married a second time, a Stockholm woman of questionable character, much younger than he, who goaded him into every sort of extravagance. On the shipbuilder's part, this marriage was an infatuation, the despairing folly of a powerful man who cannot bear to grow old. In a few years, his unprincipled wife warped the probity of a lifetime. He speculated, lost his own fortune and funds entrusted to him by poor seafaring men, and died disgraced, leaving his children nothing. When all was said, he had come up from the sea himself, had built up a proud little business with no capital but his own skill and foresight, and had proved himself a man. And his daughter, John Bergson recognized the strength of will and the simple, direct way of thinking things out that had characterized his father in his better days. He would much rather, of course, have seen this likeness in one of his sons, but it was not a question of choice. As he lay there day after day, he had to accept the situation as it was and had to be thankful that there was one among his children to whom he could entrust this future of his family and the possibilities of his hard-won land. The winter twilight was fading. The sick man heard his wife strike a match in the kitchen, and the light of a lamp glimmered through the cracks of the door. It seemed like a light shining far away. He turned painfully in his bed, and looked at his white hands with all the work gone out of them. 
He was ready to give up, he felt. He did not know how it had come about, but he was quite willing to go deep under his fields and rest where the plow could not find him. He was tired of making mistakes. He was content to leave the tangle to other hands. He thought of his Alexandra's strong ones. Daughter, he called feebly. Daughter. He heard her quick step and saw her tall figure appear in the doorway with the light of the lamp behind her. He felt her youth and strength, how easily she moved and stooped and lifted. But he would not have it again if he could, not he. He knew the end too well to wish it to begin again. He knew where it all went to, what it all became. His daughter came and lifted him up on his pillows. She called him by an old Swedish name that she used to call him when she was little and took his dinner to him in the shipyard. Tell the boys to come here, daughter. I want to speak to them. They are feeding the horses, father. They have just come back from the blue. Shall I call them? He sighed. No, no. Wait until they come in, Alexandra. You will have to do the best you can for your brothers. Everything will come on you. I will do all I can, Father. Don't let them get discouraged and go off like Uncle Otto. I want them to keep the land. We will, Father. We will never lose the land. There was a sound of heavy feet in the kitchen. Alexandra went to the door and beckoned to her brothers, two strapping boys of 17 and 19. They came in and stood at the foot of the bed. Their father looked at them searchingly, though it was not too dark to see their faces. They were just the same boys, he told himself. He had not been mistaken in them. The square head and heavy shoulders belonged to Oscar, the elder. The younger boy was quicker, but vacillating. Boys, said his father warily, I want you to keep the land together and to be guided by your sister. I have talked to her since I have been sick, and she knows all my wishes. I want no quarrels among my children. And so long as there is one house, there must be one head. Alexandra is the oldest, and she knows my wishes. She will do the best she can. If she makes mistakes, she will not make so many as I have made. When you marry and want a house of your own, the land will be divided fairly, according to the courts. But for the next few years, you will have it hard and you must all keep together. Alexandra will manage the best she can. Oscar, who was usually the last to speak, replied because he was the older. Yes, Father. It would be so anyway, without your speaking. We will all work the place together. 
and you will be guided by your sister, boys, and be good brothers to her, and good sons to your mother. That is good. And Alexandra must not work in the fields anymore. There is no necessity now. Hire a man when you need help. She can make much more with her eggs and butter than the wages of a man. It was one of my mistakes that I did not find that out sooner. Try to break a little more land every year. Sod corn is good for fodder. Keep turning the land and always put up more hay than you need. Don't grudge your mother a little time for plowing her garden and setting out fruit trees, even if it comes in a busy season. She has been a good mother to you and she has always missed the old country. When they went back to the kitchen, the boys sat down silently at the table. Throughout the meal, they looked down at their plates and did not lift their red eyes. They did not eat much, although they had been working in the cold all day, and there was a rabbit stewed in gravy for supper and prune pies. John Bergson had married beneath them, but he had married a good housewife. Mrs. Bergson was a fair-skinned, corpulent woman, heavy and placid like her son Oscar, but there was something comfortable about her. Perhaps it was her own love for comfort. For eleven years, she had worthily striven to maintain some semblance of household order amid conditions that made order very difficult. Habit was very strong with Mrs. Bergson, and her unremitting efforts to repeat the routine of her old life among new surroundings had done a great deal to keep the family from disintegrating morally and getting careless in their own ways. The Bergsons had a log house, for instance, only because Mrs. Bergson would not live in a sod house. She missed the fish diet of her own country, and twice every summer she sent the boys to the river, twenty miles to the southward, to fish for channel cat. When the children were little, she used to load them all into the wagon, the baby in its crib, and go fishing herself. Alexandra often said that if her mother were cast upon a desert island, she would thank God for her deliverance make a garden, and something to preserve. Preserving was almost a mania with Mrs. Bergson. Stout as she was, she roamed the scrubby banks of Norway Cree, looking for fox grapes and goose plums, like a wild creature in search of prey. She made a yellow jam of the insipid ground cherries that grew on the prairie, flavoring it with lemon peel and she made a sticky, dark conserve of garden tomatoes. She had experimented even with the rank buffalo pea, and she could not see a fine bronze cluster of them without shaking her head and murmuring, What a pity. When there was nothing more to preserve, she began to pickle. The amount of sugar she used in these processes was sometimes a serious drain upon the family resources. She was a good mother, 
but she was glad when her children were old enough not to be in her way in the kitchen. She had never quite forgiven John Bergson for bringing her to the end of the earth. But now that she was there, she wanted to be let alone to reconstruct her old life insofar as that was possible. She could still take some comfort in the world if she had bacon in the cave, glass jars on the shelves, and sheets in the press. She disapproved of all her neighbors because of their slovenly housekeeping, and the women thought her very proud. But when Mrs. Bergson, on her way to Norway Creek, stopped to see old Mrs. Lee, the old woman hid in the haymow, for fear Miss Bergson would catch her barefoot. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.